All right, if we can find our seats once again, um, we have the wonderful privilege to pick the mind, the heart, and the soul of Ellis Potter. Um, I wanted to lay just three quick ground rules for questions. You know, any good relationship has at least some sort of rules, right? Um, so I just, three, uh, three, three quick things. Please try and make your questions questions rather than statements. If you want to make a statement, at least put the inflection at the end to make it sound like it's a question. Um, but let's, let's try to make them questions uh, and, and encourage dialogue. That's the, the purpose of our time now. Also, uh, please share the time. I know there are some of you who are just such eager learners. You, you have so many questions that you long for answers to, but would you just share the time with others and try to space it out. It may be that you're the only one who has questions, but we won't know if you don't give someone else an opportunity uh, to ask them. So please be hospitable at that time and share. Um, also, if, you, if you're the kind of person, and I can be this way sometimes, you're not sure how you can word your question, um, and you're not normally the person who would ask a question, but deep down you've got one, take a risk. It's okay. We're not gonna, this isn't, this is a safe space to ask questions. If you have to wrestle and you say, I don't know how to ask this really, but this is kind of where I'm at and I'd love your thoughts, that's okay too. So don't be afraid to take a risk when asking questions. So those are three simple rules to help us really just maximize our time with, with Alice. So without further ado, um, I wanted to actually ask one question, like I said, to prime the, the pump. Um, And it's my my initial, not, not, not ever having been drawn to Buddhism personally, I was curious, Ellis, why did you initially become a Buddhist? Hmm. Am I on? Do you hear me in the back? Okay. What? I'm turned on. Okay. We're hot here. Okay. Ooh, la, la. There are... There are many forms of Buddhism. I, I, I will say something I said to Jeremiah yesterday. In my years of ministry and talking with people, many people, perhaps hundreds, have come to me and have said, my cousin or my brother or my boyfriend or my girlfriend or my uh, someone is into Buddhism and has been for a long time, and I just don't know what to do about it. And my first question is, what kind of Buddhism are they involved in? And every person so far has said, I have no idea. And my response is, you don't love that person. You don't care. You only want to protect yourself. You're afraid. You don't love. I'm sorry, but that's how I read it. There are many different kinds of Buddhism, and they're very, very different from each other. Some Buddhists believe in individual salvation, like we do. Some Buddhists believe that no one is saved until everyone is saved. They tend to be the missionary types, because their salvation depends on (laughs) your salvation, so they have a vested interest in spreading the word. When I was a kid, I asked a lot of questions. And as a lot of kids get in Christian environments, people said, don't ask questions, just believe. You should have faith like a little child. Well, even I could realize that 
the profession of children is to ask questions. <laughs> Whoever met a little child that didn't ask questions? Have faith like a little child, don't ask questions. What kind of nonsense is that? But have any of you ever been told that when you were little? No? You have, oh, you have. Okay, the rest of you, you have been protected <clears throat> because this often happens because parents don't know the answer and pastors don't know the answer. And so they say, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's wrong. It means your faith is weak. No, it doesn't. It means your faith is strong if you ask questions because you trust that God will give good answers. If you're afraid that God might not have the answer, then you won't ask because you don't want to rock the boat. But if you trust God, it doesn't matter if you rock the boat because he's got the boat in his hands. You're free. You have courage to ask the questions. You trust. And so you ask the questions. That's what being a little child is all about. Fearless question asking. Annoying question asking. Embarrassing question asking. And, and when, we're, when we're children of God, then this is our approach to life. So Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Because that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And you might sneak in, but you wouldn't like it. You wouldn't be comfortable there. Because the kingdom of heaven is like little children. <gasps> Look at that. Oh, yes, put it in my mouth. Taste it. It's fearless. Just fearless. That's what little children are like. Ask anything. How high is up? How far is far? How small is small? I mean, that's what children ask, isn't it? They want to know the parameters of reality. Well, I never grew up. I still want to know the parameters of reality. And as I asked this question, I realized that the Christians that I knew were not interested. They were interested in their religious social subculture and in maintaining the status quo. They weren't interested in truth. They were interested in feeling that they were okay and, yeah, they, they weren't interested in truth. And, and I was interested in truth. It isn't that I wasn't a sinner. I was a wretched kid. I was terrible. But I was interested in truth. I wanted to know how far is far. But when you think down to the bottom and out to the edges, what do you find in the whole reality? This, I wanted to know this. Well, the Zen Buddhists are constantly thinking about absolutes. Not all Buddhists are. But I was very attracted to Zen Buddhists, partly because they're constantly asking questions about the absolute. They're constantly thinking about the absolute and trying to experience the absolute, and because they were the only religious group I ever encountered that does not sell jewelry. <laughs> and I still admire that. <laughs> so, does that help? Does that answer your question? Okay, so that attracted me to, to Buddhism. The interest in the absolute and... And the, the offer of an absolute. You know what monism is? It's, don't mix it up with monotheism. Monotheism is the belief in one God, like a Jew or a Muslim or a Christian. Monism is the belief in one one. 
And this is the basis of the New Age bumper sticker, All is One. Isn't that a comforting gospel? All is one. Everything is united. There cannot be any conflict because all is one, peace and love. It's so attractive. I mean, you feel it. You feel it in your body. You feel it in your blood, the attractiveness of this, because death is attractive. If it weren't, we, weren't, we wouldn't sin. If death was not attractive, we wouldn't sin, because the wages of sin is death. But the devil is very powerful and intelligent. He's also wrong and dead, but he's very powerful and intelligent, and he cleverly attracts us. Have you ever noticed that God is three persons and the devil is one person? God is other-centered and the devil is necessarily self-centered. The devil is like a black hole from which no light escapes. He's sucking everything into himself. And he's desperately trying to suck you and me into himself so that we become self-centered and belong to him. That's what death is. And it's very attractive because it's all about me and my pleasure and my aggrandizement and my independence and my entitlement and my authority. And so it's very attractive, but it's a honey trap. And we get stuck in it and, and we're dead. So the, the, the great monistic religions are Buddhism and Hinduism, which is like a billion and a half people presently. It's a, it's a significant group. And they believe that all is one, which is a simple thing to say, but there's, I mean, I wrote a book about it. There's a lot that, that can be said. And, and Christians don't believe that all is one. We believe God alone is God, and God is not alone. See, there, there is a unity and a diversity. Well, the Zen Buddhists are very special because they're not monists. They're nonists. They believe in nothing. But it's a very special nothing. It's not a negative nothing. It's a positive nothing. It's a pregnant nothing. Am I going too far? I'm sort of preaching a Buddhist sermon. I hope none of you are converted. (coughs) Be careful. It's a pregnant nothing. Let me illustrate. We might say it is possible that it will rain tonight. That possibility is real, and it is nothing. You can't measure it. You you can't assign a number to it. It's just, it's possible. Everything that is, every object, every person, every thought, every dream, every imagination, every feeling, every emotion is possible, or it doesn't exist. Can you think of something that exists that is not possible? Is God possible? Yes. Is the devil possible? Are you possible? I know some people tell their children, you're impossible, but it's not true. If they're there, it's possible. So everything that is, is possible, which means possibility is the mother of everything. Possibility is nothing that is pregnant with everything. Okay, I will tell you the deepest truth of Buddhism in one phrase. 
Buddha is possibility. Buddha is not the golden fat guy in the restaurant. You know, there are all kinds of Buddhas, the fat ones and thin ones and lying down and sitting and standing up and old and young and all. What kind do you want in the restaurant? You want the fat laughing guy because he inspires your customers. Well, a, a lot of us, that's the only Buddha we know. We say, well, this is really not fair. It's not clear understanding of Buddhism at all. It's much more rich and complicated and attractive because a billion people are not all masochists or idiots. They have reasons to be Buddhist, not just because their grandparents were, but when they think about it. That's why a lot of um, microbiologists and astrophysicists in America become Buddhists. This is very powerfully attractive because it logically, philosophically, is satisfactory. The basis of everything is possibility. And this is attractive to a scientist. The bottom line is possibility. So, I mean, but this is the enemy. It's very attractive. I lived in it for 15 years. And it is attractive. And you can be loyal to this. You can have emotions about this. But if the Bible is true, it's not correct. It's not, it's not real. But it's, it's a real battle. And probably most of you know people who are in the battle, attracted, perhaps caught in, in this direction of monism or, or nonism. And it's, it's quite a serious thing. Yes. That was very articulate, actually. There's no problem with <laughs> you did You succeeded, I must say. Um, the, the difference is in the understanding of what love is. So in the Hindu, that's, that God is love. So, but what is love? So in the, in the monistic view, love is a state of being. It is not a relationship. Yes. No, it's a state of being. The origin is a state of being. Because behind Krishna is Brahman. Yes, but... <clears throat> but also... That's right. They're avatars. But the original reality 
of which Krishna, Vishnu, Shiva are avatars, is one only. Whereas the God of the Bible, the original reality behind which there is nothing, the square one, is three. And that is the difference. That's right. Yeah, um, it's, it's my proverb. God alone is God, and God is not alone. But we would say Brahman alone is God, and Brahman is alone until, until there are avatars. But the God of the Bible doesn't require avatars in order not to be alone because the, the original reality, the starting point of the biblical understanding of reality is perfectly unified and perfectly diversified. That's right. And, and <clears throat> that's right. And the Bible would say God did not need to create in order not to be alone. Which from my point of view is more powerful. More more because if God needed to create me in order not to be alone, in order to be a personal relational God, then his character is dependent on his creation. But the God of the Bible is independent of his creation. And he I worship because he doesn't need me. He doesn't need any avatar. His love is other-centered, I would say. You're welcome. Good question. And very articulate. (laughs) Yeah. Upon that, what are the consequences, the two consequences then about those two different realities of what love is in our relationships? Could you hear it in the back? Okay, good. <clears throat> um, the question is, what are then the, if you follow the two tracks, monism, where God is one, and the biblical God, where there's relationships, God, if you follow those down into our relationships, how does that look, the two ideas? How does that change us and how we look at ourselves and our, our relationships? Yeah. In the idea that all is one, the original perfection of reality is a perfect unity. We suffer because of the illusion of diversity. We experience diversity, which is not the original perfect reality. And because of that illusion of diversity, we suffer. Okay, moving a little bit from Hinduism into Buddhism and the four spiritual laws of Buddhism, which are different from the four spiritual laws of Campus Crusade. The first spiritual law is the spiritual law of suffering. Everything, 
and everybody suffers. Well, the Bible would agree with that. Everything, including God, suffers. Jesus suffered. That's the main point in the Bible. So that we would agree with completely. But then the second law is the law of the cause of suffering. And the cause of suffering in the Buddhist understanding of reality is desire. If you desire, you suffer. If you don't desire, you don't suffer. So if, if you have a toothache and you desire that the pain will stop and the pain does not stop, you suffer. If you have a toothache and you do not desire that the pain will stop and the pain does not stop, you do not suffer. You're free. The way to not desire that the, the pain will stop is to realize that you are the pain. The way to stop desiring things about your relationships with people, to stop desiring to be admired, to stop desiring to control, to stop desiring to protect yourself, to stop desiring to possess, to stop all these desirings that cause suffering, is to realize that you are the other person. So a, a nice Hindu family will wake up in the morning and say to each other, Namaste, good morning, you are God. Good morning, I am you. That's a normal, pleasant greeting. I am you. And it feels good, I have to say. If, if I'm with the Hindus and they say, I am you, it feels good. And people believe it, that this is the gospel, this is the solution. All is one, all is Brahman. The original perfection is a perfect unity. We suffer because of diversity. The, the solution to the suffering is to wake up out of the nightmare of diversity into the original reality of unity. And that's why it's called awakening or enlightenment. We're caught in the nightmare of diversity and suffering, and we need to wake up through meditation and realization and various other therapeutic methods, which are frankly therapeutic, okay, and that's why people are attracted to them, because they actually help you. They help you relax, they help you to concentrate, they help you, they lower your stress, they can lower the cholesterol in your blood. These, these things, the yoga, the meditation, the transcendental, all that stuff, they're therapeutic. They help you. But the question is, do they lead you to truth? Or are they only therapeutic in an immediate sense of a benefit but their, their worldview is false, is, is unreal. So that's the question you have to ask. You need to ask the question behind the question. The immediate question is, does this make me feel better? That's a valid question. But it shouldn't be the only question. <laughs> the question should be, is it true? Is it real in, in the whole scope of reality? Does it actually work totally? And the idea that, that all is one is an extremely powerful and profound idea that I am you. 
and you are God, and all is one. You see, that's a very powerful idea. And within that idea, there is no suffering because there is no relationship. Well, this is a logical consequence to people to which people don't always come because people are inconsistent, happily, with their philosophical worldview. Now, Christians are inconsistent, unhappily, <laughs> with their <laughs> biblical worldview. Um, but if, if monism is true, then I am you, and we don't have a relationship. So in monism, hatred is evil because it is a relationship. And love is evil because it is a relationship. It's relationships, it's diversity that are the cause of all the problems. Well, that changes your attitude about things. It changes your concept of truth. It changes your concept of communication. It changes your concept of responsibility. And then on the basis of, of that basic idea, people realized thousands of years ago that people do not arrive at enlightenment in one lifetime. It's obvious people die and they didn't make it. So the doctrine of reincarnation became necessary. It was logical necessity. There has to be more time. There have to be more experiences of life so that you can evolve and grow and develop and arrive at enlightenment and unity with the all. It just takes time and big time time of like billions of years, thousands of, of incarnations is, is the normal idea of how this is. And then the laws of karma had to come in. Well, if you really are in the laws of karma, which is the law of cause and effect in a sense, a law of evolutionary development, um, you believe that a person's circumstances presently are caused by their previous circumstances and choices, which is not completely uh, alienated from actual reality because there is cause and effect. There are consequences to your choices. This is just expanded into several lifetimes that the cause and effect goes on from, from one lifetime to another lifetime, which is a logical expansion of our experience of this lifetime. The question is, is it real? Does it actually work like that? But it's, it's not illogical. It's only wrong. Now, that might be a little confusing to you. It's not illogical. It's only wrong. A lot of things you follow a logical string, but your presuppositions are wrong. And then you can have similar logic in a different presupposition, but the presuppositions are still mutually exclusive. But the logic is similar. If you see what I mean, that's a little complicated, I'm sorry. But, uh, <clears throat> so backing, backing off from, from that a little bit, it, in, in the, a strict adherence to the laws of karma, your life is outlined and has an agenda that is formed by your karmic 
influences and responsibilities and consequences of your previous life. So you do things that you need to do in order to progress spiritually into a realization of all is one. And perhaps you need to be born a man or a woman or sick or rich or poor or intelligent or stupid. You need to live a luxurious life. You need to live a a poverty life. You need to suffer. You need to suffer less, different kinds of things. So if you break your leg and you're lying in the street moaning and groaning, that is your karma. That is what you need to live through in order to go the next step. So there is a doctrine in Buddhism of non-interference. If I help you, it means you have to be reincarnated and do that all over again. So I curse you if I help you. This is why the monistic peoples never developed hospitals. And the Christian people did. Because Christian people believe it is right and good to interfere in another person's life. But a a true monist would believe it is wrong to interfere in another person's life. Well, that that would be a partial answer to your question. There are outcomings, outworkings of these things that you can see in individual people, in communities, and in in historical realities like hospitals or no hospitals. Caring for the sick and the dying. I mean, in Calcutta, who cared for the sick and the dying? Mother Teresa. It was an Albanian Catholic woman who went and cared for the dying. It wasn't a Hindu because it's not in their system. It's interference. And Mother Teresa says, I'll interfere. I believe Jesus calls me to interfere. I'm going to go and interfere in everybody's life. I'm going to change things. Well, this would be the biblical worldview and and the outcoming of that. And the other would be a bit more namaste, passive, be one with the all, let it come, this, this sort of thing, which, which has very definite uh, consequences in terms of science, medicine, social realities. It's, it's very definite. The, one of the most crowded countries on earth is Holland. Holland has more than twice the population density of India. Holland is a Calvinistic country nobody starves. India is a Hindu country. Starvation is, starvation is rampant. India has richer soil than Holland. <coughs> India has a, a, a more conducive climate to agriculture than Holland. Holland is poor in various ways compared to India, but it is rich because of the gospel. Now, there's a consequence. There's an outworking in practical history that you can see. And there are various threads like that that, that you can follow. Did I answer your question or did I talk around? I've got to start. Okay. Yes, ma'am. I think I understood from the introduction that your current work is on the developing Eastern European nations. Is that right? Yes, largely, not, not exclusively. Oh, yes. Oh, mercy. 
they're the former, former communist countries. And they were in a communistic situation for 40 or 70 years, which is two or three generations. And it has made the people collectively responsible and individually irresponsible in their attitude, which um, is not a productive situation. There's been a terrible brain drain. In 1990, Bulgaria had 7 million people. Today it has 5 million. And the 2 million who left are those who were able, who could get jobs, who had skills and, and things like that. And so the poverty is just tremendous because of that. And it's, it's the mind of Christ that they're missing. There, there is a collective um, mindset uh, about, okay, I'm going to say something really politically incorrect. Pace, everybody. In the 20th century, all the Orthodox peoples, except the Greeks, became communist because they already had a Sobor Solidarność um, group reality mentality because of Orthodox theology. Half the Catholic countries became communist and none of the Protestant countries except Eastern Germany by conquest became communist. I think that's significant. And the, and the consequences today are significant. So I think we still need to have Protestant missionaries in these countries. Now, I know that's politically incorrect and it's hegemonistic and it's racist and it's all kinds of evil things. Excuse me, I believe in it. <laughs> I think that these people would be blessed by such activity and such, such a, a, a change of idea about things. So that would be a, a central thing. Then there are specific economic, governmentals. I mean, some of these countries are governed by kleptocracies. And the people are just drained. And the, the government... What, and what the, kleptocracy? Do you know what uh, kleptomania is? Um, the, the love of stealing? Well, kleptocratic is a parody of democratic. It means thieving society, kleptocracy. And they, and they are kleptocratic. The government steals. That's, that's how it works. And the government leaders steal, and then they put all their money in Switzerland, where I live, which is very, very rich, partly because of that. And then they leave the country. When things get really hot, they, they leave the country and they go and live where their money is. And so this just brings it down, down, down. There, there are some things that have improved here and there. The, the Christians, the evangelical Protestant Christians in these countries have been a tiny minority, very persecuted, and have been living in a kind of a bomb shelter mentality for generations. And they're not free because of that. They're very legalistic and they're very... Um, preservation through avoidance and um, 
not lively, not engaging in society. Their, their whole uh, mentality is protection and escape. Not reaching out, loving, caring, doing, um, changing a light bulb in the apartment building. But a, a lot of the attitude is basically kismet. It is the will of Allah. Just, uh, I was in Zhitomir in Ukraine. Which Have any of you ever heard of Zhitomir? Good. It's a city of two million people. It's a big place. It's not a, a blip on the radar. It's a major thing. And we don't, we don't know about it. And it's, it was winter and it snowed. And the snow piled up and was just here and there and everywhere. And nobody did anything about it. And I said, aren't you interested to plow or to something? And they said, these were Christians. They said, well, you know, it falls out of the sky. And what can you do about it? <laughs> Well, this is not the American way. Now, I don't think everyone should become American, and maybe you don't like me for saying that, but the American way is not the right way for everybody on earth. But there are some things about the American way that might really be beneficial to various people around the world. So does that give you some idea of, of the situation? Yeah. I had a very interesting experience in Bulgaria in December. In Bulgaria, the Protestants and the Orthodox are afraid of each other, do not talk about each other, and there has been a, a real history of persecution there because the Protestants are really a minority. And Protestants have said evil, hateful things about the Orthodox, and they have evil in their heart about the Orthodox since a long, long time for understandable reasons. Well, some friends of mine who are university professors are working in the university of Bulgaria, and they could see that there are believing Orthodox professors that they would like to connect with and do projects together with. So they organized a big meeting with a, an Orthodox professor of philosophy and me, that we would have a four-hour conversation in public with audience participation and television cameras. No stress, no pressure, just casual. Go in there on the subject of icons. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, it was an interesting experience. It was, it was really good. And this professor was really good. He was really a professor, and I really liked him, and he was professional, and he gave a great lecture. And it was really, really fine. And we actually connected with each other. And at the point of connection, the audience exploded. People stood and shouted and applauded because this was the pioneer effort of actually finding common ground in Christ instead of alienating ground in various traditions. So it was a kind of a spark. It may have blown out by now, but please God, it, it will keep going. And we need more things like that. Of course, the, the average Protestant missionary who goes into Eastern Europe will do practical things build a school, finance a seminary, help uh, with various things, take in medical supplies, things like that. All good. But it doesn't bring the mind of Christ. 
It is the fruits of the gospel and not fully the gospel, if you see. So we, we need more than the practical help. We need the mind of Christ to, to come and sh- begin to shape ideas and to, to free people to ask questions. Because in the school systems of those countries, you're forbidden to ask questions. You just don't ask questions. I was in Poland under communism, and we were going to have a big uh, camp, 200 young people, and I saw the schedule, and it was just lecture, 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 free time, lecture, lecture, free time. I said, there's no time for discussion, for questions. They said, oh, the Polish people will not ask you questions. I said, oh, yes, they will. We have ways of making them talk. <clears throat> so I, I gave a lecture, and then I said, what are your questions? Silence. Big tent in the summer full of, full of people. And so the next lecture, I said, I've changed the subject of the lecture. I'm going to give you the lecture called The Importance of Asking Honest Questions. And I gave this long lecture about asking questions and the mind of Christ and everything. Now, what are your questions? Silence. So there was a guy in the front row, and I knew his name. And I said, Piot, you have a question. What is it? And he stood up, and he let fly this question. And people were you know, prepared for the bombs to drop. So I answered his question, and he didn't like my answer. And he said so, and people were terrified that the earth would open and swallow him because he was disagreeing with the professor. So we argued there, standing, facing each other with these people. And it was a tense, tense moment. Well, the next day, the the kids went to the leaders of the camp and said, could we use half of our free time for discussion? And they were shocked. Well, the pastors were terrified. Terrified. Because authority has a different meaning in a communist tradition than it does in ours. Authority means there are no questions. It's not the, the accountability is disconnected from authority. Authority is just, I tell you, you don't ask, I run it. And, and I was blowing it up you know, and saying, no, they should ask and we should talk and we should be vulnerable as leaders and we should hear their questions and work with them. And of course, they never invited me back because it was, it was just too radical. But in my view, this is what is needed in, in the former communist countries. Yes? I didn't hear it all. Okay, I, many people ask me that, and I'm not sure what they're asking. It could be a variety of things. Do you mean... The circumstances of it? Um, I don't know, maybe it was a long journey for you to figure out who Jesus is and how how did it happen? Okay, it's it's not so easy to answer that question. I mean one real answer is by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
which in the great extent cannot be understood. But that would be the answer for everybody. I mean, that would be everybody's answer by the power of the Holy Spirit, which you can't really understand his working in your life. God did it. He saved me. He met me. He found me. He, he presented himself to me, and I received and, and, and I was saved. Well, that happens in different ways for different people. Instantly, over a period of time, dramatically, quietly, alone, with other people, at a Billy Graham crusade, you know, it's, it happens differently uh, to different people. And I don't know how helpful that would be to you to know my specific circumstances. Exactly. Okay, there are various things I could tell you. One, I could tell you I was sitting in a chalet in a village called Chezières in the French-speaking part of Switzerland in an upstairs room reading a book called Escape from Reason. And I looked up from the book and the whole universe changed shape. It was as if I had a cornea transplant instantly. Everything changed. But that doesn't really help you, does it? I mean, it's my experience, it's true, but uh, it won't be your experience. But it's nice to know. Oh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's nice to know. That's, that's how it happened. But that doesn't tell you anything about truth or anything about... Uh, it, it doesn't tell you anything. It's just the, the circumstances of my life, which are true. They're, they're fact. Another thing I could tell you is that I worked with various questions, and and one of the most important questions was the question, is the non-personal necessarily sub-personal? Couldn't there be a super-personal non-personal from which personality proceeds? (laughs) See, that was the core of my wrestling. See, and because Buddhism believes in a non-personal absolute, and personality proceeds from that non-personal absolute, but personality is not absolute. The Bible says personality is absolute. So that was where I was, where I was wrestling. And it's I'm not the only one. I think other people wrestle in that area as well. So for me, that would be the more important part of my answer, the more important answer. And the circumstances would be real and true and perhaps interesting, but the less important, the less useful part. But that question I offer to you (laughs) as a gift... (laughs) Does God always love terrible people? Yes, he does, but they don't love him. Thank you.
Yes. My impression is better than most, yes. People like Rabbi Zacharias. Yes. So, you know, we have people come in that, that are used to answering the hard questions, but in general there's, there's always that point up there where um, nobody has the answer anymore. And it's, um, is there a time when you just, it's time to stop asking the questions? As an individual? I'm not sure. I can imagine the possibility that for an individual there would be the time to stop asking questions and to just let Jesus love them. (laughs) So you are... Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. My impression is that you are younger than your children. <laughs> yes, I am. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Please don't grow up. 